Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, everyone. It's Kareem, the voice of Simon Fairchild and the Eternal Tavern Keeper. Today, I'm here to tell you about The Program. The Program audio series is a science fiction anthology podcast set in a world where money, state, and God are fused into a single entity. Every episode is a standalone story featuring ordinary people inhabiting this extraordinary world. And for them, it's not this future that is terrifying, but our present. The Program is sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, but it is always smart. Find out more about The Program at www.rustyquill.com or www.programaudioseries.com, or search for The Program Audio Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have fun and see you later. Hi everyone, Alex here. I'd just like to take a moment to thank some of our patrons. Zed Perkins, Ivashia, Robert Groom, Asher Ufara, Niam Hemingway, Kyle, Joshua Groman, Rachel Oney, Malcolm Snipes, Alex Haydignac, Michelle Latour, Oscar Marlowe, Glory Duda, Joe Smith, Alex Freeman, Kate May, Xantha Boomer, Paul McHugh, Ciara McCabe, January Garcia. Thank you all. We really appreciate your support. If you'd like to join them, go to www.patreon.com forward slash rustyquill and take a look at our rewards. Hi everyone, Alex again. Just taking a moment to give you a bit of Rusty Quill news ahead of today's episode. Firstly, we want to thank everyone for your support and dedication up to this point. It's been a wild ride and we could not have hoped for better people to end the world with. Secondly, in terms of the hiatus between seasons, we know it's a long one, but we really wanted to make sure that we had enough time to get things running as smoothly as possible for the final season. We appreciate your patience in this, and as a way of saying thanks, we're aiming to be releasing special season break content every fortnight or so. The first of which is today's episode, part one of our epic Q&A session for the later season. We have a bunch more special content planned, so keep an eye on the Magnus feed over the coming months. Finally, if you just can't handle the break even with these bonus goodies, we'd like to recommend to you Season 2 of Outliers, the historic fiction podcast we produce alongside historic royal palaces. This anthology tells the stories of people who have been sidelined by history, living in the shadows of real events at some of the greatest palaces ever built. It features original work from award-winning contemporary writers based on actual research by historic royal palaces, and is accompanied by full soundscapes and musical production from Rusty Quill. This has been a really exciting project for us to have worked on, and we are thrilled to be able to present it to you. You can find all of Season 1 available via your podcatcher of choice, and Season 2 is happening right now. We'll include a link in the show notes. So once you're done with this episode, why not jump on over and give it a try? We really think you're going to enjoy it, and you may even recognise a few friendly voices. Anyway, that's enough from me. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Magnus Archive Season 4 Q&A. This is going to be one of two because we have a lot. I'm here with Johnny there's, Sims. There's a lot. There's, there's a lot. 
And we're going to be doing our best to get through all of the questions that have been raised uh, since last time we did a Q&A. We are going to preface this, though, with going, we have more than 700 and it's still like going a up. a lot, yeah. There's, there's so many. So it is going to be a case of, statistically speaking, your specific question isn't going to be asked and we're sorry about that. There were uh, apparently quite a few that have been condensed down into yeah, we, sort of there's, over questions. There's a couple of questions where more than 100 people asked some version of the same question. Yeah. So we should get through quite a lot of them. But yeah, we can't do all of them. We're going to do the best we can. And we're going to shake things up a little bit instead of going through sort of blocky like one on cast one on production etc we're now going to be separating out a little bit and i'm going to be shaking it up keeping you on your toes right um so, to be honest i'm a bit nervous well it, this is a this is a tricky one because we've taken bigger punts with this season so we'll see how it goes and there are enough people listening out there now that i can feel the pressure of history upon me yeah i mean if you want to have fun you need to this probably... i can't have fun i can't <laughs> have fun fun is Fun jokey answers are no longer. Uh, no, it's great. You mm. need you need to go on uh, Google Trends at some point and look at the search uh, searches for Magnus Archives and look at that nice oh, little oh logarithmic uh, scale. I don't know what's happened. It's lovely. Right. Thank you, everyone who's recently joined us <laughs> to listen. We 100% value you, and are only a little bit scared. Oh no, he's he's terrified. I'm I'm at this point so far beyond the pale. You just kind of roll with it. It's Alex like surfing had, an enormous wave. Alex hasn't had feelings in some years. It's true. In fact, straight out of the gate, I'm going to use that as my in. So the first of our questions to do with cast. Alex, why do you hate Martin so much? That's a real good question. Okay, this is a very simple question that has come up more than once. I don't actively hate Martin. I just don't like him. And I've said it before, so I will just have to repeat my answer from before, which is he is a younger version of me when it comes to characterization, And when it comes to script editing, I've also done that as well. It is a version of me or at least parts of him are a version of me from a while ago that needed to learn and has now learned actually through season four that going around just trying to set yourself on fire to keep everyone else warm doesn't work um so i'm actually okay with martin by end of season four for the simple reason that he stopped doing that thing yeah so i'm okay with martin now i really like him as a character i find him through season four he was quite difficult to write because often there would be plot points that I needed him to deliver and every time I tried to write him delivering them it sounded it didn't sound right it, it just sounded false in his voice well it's because Martin's default season four became I'm kind of pissy right now yeah which makes exposition a bit difficult but we got there <laughs> oh and that one's from Antiva I need to remember to uh, uh, yes. read the names thank you right so we have a production question uh, for both of us from Benja, how do you feel about being so close to the end of Magnus? Excited and a little bit nervous, mainly. Yeah, I think for myself, we're entering... So we're past the danger period of season four, which was uh, everyone might hate us for what we did. Yeah, the the big the big climax of season four is always going to be the part of the whole series that we were most like worried about. That It's been building for four seasons. Yeah, yeah. For me, End of Magnus is scary for the same reason that any project you do, which is scary, which is you do your finale and everyone goes, that was fantastic. And then you're like, cool, here's this other thing that we're now working on that we think you'll really enjoy. And everyone goes, no, I'm good. One project per creative per lifetime. Yeah. Uh, that's the scare. That's yeah, the that fear. Yeah, that is a bit worrisome. 
Also, I have some slight nerves about season five, just because for season four we knew the big drop we were going towards, and while and like we know the we know the the end of season five we're going to, but it's a different sort of journey. Denouement are hard. Yeah, I think it's going to be the most technically difficult one for us to write, without it necessarily being the most risky in terms of like ending the world with a season to go yeah. is a higher risk I'm move. just glad that here on tape you will confirm that you're happy for us to do approximately 40 unknowings uh, in terms of audio editing um, yeah I'm absolutely you can write as many unknowings as you want we're not going to make them <laughs> so you can just make those on your own get yourself a wobble board and just have some fun is, is that what you did I mean I'm not going to go into that unless it's a question so, on to a story question from Ashley Desert Willow Wilson. Mm-hmm. Limited swearing is done for real-world release reasons, but is there any reason for it within the law? Does the eye just not like cursing in its statements slash meals? I mean, there's no law reason except that the characters we're writing aren't particularly sweary. And um, I'm fairly certain they would have been more if I wasn't like, no. I mean, oh yeah, no, there this was... This hard, grizzled convict also cares a lot about cursing. If it's uh, of interest to anyone, um, there was the piecemeal episode yep. was where this first came to the fore. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the first draft of that, I filled it chock full of uh, swears. Uh, and Alex, uh, largely actually as a catalyst to have the conversation. Um, and we had the conversation... And the swearing in that one was toned back a bit and we uh, landed at the level that we've more or less continued. Personally, from a writing point of view, I 100% agree with Alex that it's really useful to be able to have some linguistic escalation available to you, which is hard when you've got a constant stream of uh, expletives. Pretty much that. I I don't really have anything to add to that. Bang on. Okay, this one's a writing question. So this is from Sy, S-Y. This season had a lot of focus on characters' emotional conditions, motivations, and interpersonal relationships, all dealing with a lot of nuance. What part was the hardest to write convey, in your opinion, and what part did you want to get exactly right the most? I am going to struggle to pick the most. I could pick sort of like a highlight reel because we had a lot in this one. Yeah. When we were doing season planning for this one, we actually put little sort of red markers on the bits that we knew we were going to yeah, have yeah. to focus on. So stuff like Melanie's decision. Melanie's decision, I think, is one of the... Like, a lot of the series was contextualising... Because the, the the idea of Melanie doing that uh, as an actually mentally healthy act, if that makes sense. really difficult... It was something we really wanted to to dive into, but not just from a, an emotional writing point of view, but from... I mean, there are people who are blind, and it's saying, oh, this horrible thing, this terrible, terrible, terrible thing horrible, of horrible. being... Bl-, like, there's a lot to consider in order to not make it a really... Gauche. I was going to say... But uh, a really like a really bad piece of representation, and we wanted to to take care to not do that. Also, treading the line for Peter in terms of everyone hates yeah. Peter because he's a real world villain instead of a I'm gonna eat your brains villain. Yeah, the lonely like diving into the lonely. I hadn't quite anticipated how close it would hew to real world depression, mm. uh, and it was one of those things that when when you read it back, it's obvious. But it was only through the writing that I started to realise, oh, this is this is touching on some 
very real stuff and so that was that was a very yeah tricky line to walk another one that i think we put a marker down but actually turned out to seem to come out better than we feared it might is the sort of pseudo addiction angle on the um archivist statement giving where that was one that we were aware could get away from you if you weren't being careful about it but i don't think i think i think it it seemed to land well yeah it seemed to land the way we wanted which was not as a lazy analog yeah i mean as a as a whole because season three was very dynamic uh, yeah, very going moves. out there like taking action we wanted season four to be much more emotion focused for the the plot and the emotional arcs to be much more one and the same mm. i agree i think for what it's worth there are more but then we're just going to start listing episodes and I reasons mean, that we had to be careful oh well, well, well if we with every relationship every relationship that got any play in the series uh which is all of them um, you know what? Here's a one little extra bonus one which made me chuckle. Ooh, a bonus. Is, again, I don't actually engage in the fan base that much anymore just due to time constraints, if nothing else. Um, but hearing that people were start of getting getting a bit antsy with Basira for being a bit sort of steamrollery and things. Oh, yeah. But the fact that Basira's the one who was right all season to a to, for a given for a given value of right like i mean this is not a season where there is anyone who is right I'm just uh, saying the archivist did end the world I, okay and if yeah, Basira oh, right. had just given him a harder time he might not have done if, if by a harder time you mean you know like a just a complete yeah complete stone cold murdering but uh well if if she could if she could have oh who's, yeah. who's to say who's to say um <laughs> but no like that this is the thing like there are no simple answers. There are no like, oh, they, this person was right and should have just done no, this. That was the point of the season. <laughs> <laughs> on to a, a non-story one this time. This one is from, quote, loads of people. Quote loads. Um, oh, okay. As in, that's an actual right. number, not uh, Bracing myself. How much do you keep up with social media to see what fans are saying about Magnus? Or does Anil keep tabs on all of us Panopticon style and alert you when something significant comes up? I can answer for me, I can't answer for Johnny. Sure. Very much the latter for me at this point. It's like a personalised Google alert from Anil who's like, listen, everyone does worry that you are anti-Martin. Is that a thing that we're going to need to discuss? But I don't, I haven't really had much chance to dive into anything. I, it's I, largely yeah. because people were like, oh, Johnny, you're writing lots of horrible things happening to our beloved Martin. And I'm like, Yes, it's a horror. It's a horror <laughs> show, and they're like, "Why do you hate Mud?" And I'm like, "Actually, it's it's mostly Alex, and so it's it's my fault. I have a hundred percent outsourced uh, fan discontent onto you. That's all good because you're more insulated from it. I mean, ultimately, yeah. Because if anyone threatens me, I can just make Martin sadder. It's <laughs> <laughs> very true. Um, I tend to on release day. I will keep half an eye on. Uh, the Reddit or the Tumblr, and I used to be the Discord. I still sometimes do, but it goes it goes very fast, and I generally don't have a, a chance to actually properly engage with it. Hmm. Um, so immediately after an episode drops, I'll generally be trying to get a sense for how it's gone down and sense for what the reaction is. But I, I do rely on Anil to let me know if there's any problems or any like anything that's come up uh on social media that is like oh i should 
probably address that. See, I feel like I've started to get a bit of a reputation as Gandalf the Grey, where I just, I only tend to turn up in the Discord now if something's going wrong, as in, like, technically wrong, and I need to make sure it's releasing properly. So I mostly turn up with bad news and then leave. <laughs> to be fair, I'm I'm enjoying my status as uh, essentially a, a some sort of chaos god within the the Discord, where I'll just turn up and then everyone's like, "Oh, oh, Johnny's here," and then I'll leave. Johnny, t- and then you'll leave. Yeah, you'll leave Anil to clean up all of the mess that we make. Um, okay, cool. I'm going to jump back onto a cast one. Uh, oh, one I've sort of answered already. Actually, uh, it's from Erin. How have your feelings on Martin as a character changed since season one? I can summarize this one really quickly. Yep. Uh, much like a certain type of smelly cheese, Martin needed an aging and maturing process in order to reach his full flavorful potential. At the start, he was very, very fluffy and just there as a nice little foil. As things progressed, it was, oh, there's a person underneath the foil. Oh, they're wonderful. Oh, they're not wonderful. They're problematic. By season four, end of season four, I'm actually, I'm, I'm fine with Martin now. He's, he's matured nicely. He is ready to be spread over a delicious cracker and eaten. For me, it's, it's less a cheese metaphor and more. In season one, Martin was, yeah, a, a fluffy character to unleash some worms on. Pretty much. Um, and <laughs> since then, he's very much uh, deep. And we, we always had the overall plan for his arc, but planning an arc and getting a sense of how that arc progresses are two very different things. This is from Geo. In previous seasons, it has appeared that the only people who have had supernatural encounters have been the ones giving statements to the Magnus Institute. But right. in season four, we've heard about the archivist getting statements from essentially random people on the street. Approximately what percentage of people in the Magnus verse have had an encounter with one of the entities? Well, I mean, they're random people on the street, but they're random people on the street who have had encounters with the entities. Uh, it's it's not the case that everyone who's had an encounter with the entities has gone to the Magnus Institute. I, I mean, I haven't really thought about it, but if I was going to just guess a number, I'd say maybe... Five to ten percent of the people in the Magnus world who have had an encounter with the entities have ended up reporting it to the Magnus Institute or uh, one of the other uh, organisations. And running the numbers in my head on the fly, in order for this universe to make any sense, the percentage of the general population that has been exposed to the genuinely supernatural must be less than about one percent. I'd say probably everyone has brushed up against them. Really? Just, just in in the sense of like, I mean. Everyone has that thing that they're like, is someone, is there someone? No. Okay, I'm fine. Then um, it must be less than 1% of the in Yeah, maybe way. like 10 to 15% have had like a spook. A, a spook. What what you might think of as just like a slightly ghostly encounter that is not significant enough to delve into. Didn't really go anywhere. Yeah, and maybe maybe 0.1% have had a legitimate, yeah. like it's a small enough number that it's not, that they're not going to speak up to anyone who's not like, hey, tell me your story. Alex, narratologist here. Mm. I recommend anyone interested in that reading up on the technique of writing known as the masquerade. It's a trope or a conceit, the idea being there's the world behind the world, but there's quite a lot of writing on how many people within your world are allowed to see behind that curtain before your world breaks. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go into it here. It's a whole field of study, but it's interesting. I'd recommend it. On to another writing question. Yep, yep. This one's from Amber. Which would you each consider more important, resolving all the mysteries you created or giving compelling arcs to all the characters you created? Do you ever find there is a difficulty in balancing those two things in the story? Uh, arcs and yes. I would agree. 
for the simple reason that for a character arc, if you've left the character arc unfinished, you are wrong. Yes. Like you have, you've done a bad story. If you leave a mystery unanswered, as long as it is a type of mystery that is allowed to be unanswered. Yeah. In some way, it's not quite the dichotomy that it might be presented as, yeah. because if you know the answer to the mystery when you start yeah. the mystery, then not answering it is less of a danger. As long um, as it stays consistent, like you don't change your answer halfway through writing yeah, and not like tell the, anyone, which well, happens the, the, more the, than you d- might The think. danger is the urge to change the mystery to better support character arcs, or to change character arcs to better support the mystery. Really dangerous. That's where the, I mean, and that's where the balancing act is. Uh, and I think there are a few in Magnus that have slightly changed their shape, uh, or the answers as they've gotten deeper, effectively have uh, interacted more with people's character arcs. But this is one of the advantages of writing uh, the mysteries where the wider answer to the mystery is categorically known at the start, but a lot of the smaller details, a lot of the smaller threads are still unconnected, and those are the things that can be threaded uh, through a character arc. I think an unsatisfying character arc is more of a weakness than an unsatisfying mystery. I've never thought of it before. I suppose an unanswered character arc is just a mess an unanswered mystery is still a mystery it's just an unanswered well, it's one. why it's why stuff that is pure mystery tends not to have a character arc yeah i mean you read a poirot book like poirot's not having a character but arc. what if he doesn't solve this one johnny his, his character arc is man who has not solved a murder solves a murder. <laughs> arcing into man who has solved a murder um and it's and it's because yeah so there's no conflict there between uh, arc and mystery I don't know. I'd love to read a Poirot where it's the one where he doesn't solve the mystery and he just has to deal. Well, I mean, if you do want a Poirot mystery that has an arc for him, uh, Curtin Poirot's last case is probably the one, like the last Poirot mystery, because there's an arc. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to say <laughs> what it beyond, is, because spoilers. You are beyond my sphere of knowledge at this point. Poirot is not something I've done a deep dive on, Wow, I have that to admit. deep dive is really, really good. <laughs> Right, we're going to jump to a... Uh, a Little a Belgian solves crimes. It's wonderful. <laughs> we're going to jump on a, uh, to a misc, which is yep, from uh, Lucille. How do you feel about the growth of the fan community during this last season and the increase in fan creations, art and cosplay and so on, as well as often high trending on Tumblr after the release? I mean, short answer, terrified. Good. The, the correct answer is good. The, <laughs> it's a really interesting thing because as the fandom has grown... It's no longer a, a a monolith. It's no longer well. It was never a monolith, obviously, but it's no longer a more or less unified group. I need to be a lot more careful how I interact because things that I would say potentially ingest, like they have resonance now. I can't simply have, I can't have an opinion on my work because my opinion is not an opinion. Yes. My opinion is something that people can take and deploy in fandom context and it's it's very much like i have made a big party and as i've made this big party i myself have grown so that i am now a huge stone giant so if he attempts to attend the party he will destroy the party and everyone will die because he i will crush them with my giant stone hands that's how i feel oh you're the kid that made the enormous lego landscape that got so big you can't play with it anymore uh yes (laughs) See, I have it far easier. I I just have my new shield, which is working really well, which is, mate, I, I just work here. I'm the mechanic that you bring your story to, and I'm like, 
Well, problem is there, you've got a bus carburetor in, mate. Your, your character art, that's well out. That's going to need completely replacing, mate. Oh. Okay, we're going we're gonna to jump onto a cast one again. Cast Landman, which guest voice actor were you most excited or just very excited to have on this season? That's really hard, actually, because I wasn't here for most of the guest recordings. This season has had you out of the studio more than any other, actually. Yeah, like, I really was looking forward to working with Alistair. Um, <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> uh, and I, did we have any... I think... You had one scene. We had one scene that we actually recorded Alistair, together. Alistair, who plays Peter Lucas, has never been in the same room, apart from once in passing to say hello yep. as the other was leaving, with Ben, who plays Elias. Elias and Peter have never been in the same room. Yep for a recording that's bananas yes yeah. uh also uh john henry who played uh, arthur yeah. nolan we're friends but we're we never really see each other so mm. i was really looking forward to to actually uh hang out to do something no, that wasn't go? there wasn't there <laughs> um so yeah I've met everyone it's been lovely okay so yeah you can answer this question so i was very happy to get to work more with alistair um, and I have to, like, in front of everyone, I have to give him a, a big thanks because out of everyone, he ran into an enormous technical glitch twice in a row. Oh, yeah. Not avoidable, not a thing that we could necessarily prep for. You know, mechanical failures happen, that kind of thing. And the absolute trooper turned up for two massive pickup sessions in a row, recording opposite people who weren't here. So he's recording in isolation, making enormous journeys to do it. So he he sort of became my MVP by the end of the season. He is officially the loveliest man. I had good fun as well working with Kareem. Oh, just yeah. Just because he had the most fun, where a lot of the, the, a lot of the direction consisted of... Are we thinking more, I want to kill everyone in the room, or are we thinking more like, here are some cookies? I actually met Kareem for the first time last night, and uh, he's lovely. I was also really glad to get Fran and Ian, that's uh, Trevor and oh, yeah. um, Julia, back in the studio. Oh yes, I was there with them, that's fun, I always like, uh, always enjoy recording with them. Because not many people know as well, Ian originally started as an editor for us, he was editing mm. with Rusty Quill for like a year, and then suddenly went, also I'm a professional performer, and I'm like, well... Bury the lead. So yeah, that, it was good getting them back into the studio. That was that was good fun. But honestly, this season's kind of been a little bit of a candy store where yeah. I can say that now, at the time it meant all casting was a nightmare. But after the fact, it does mean, oh, I got to work with this person and this person. But yeah, I think Alistair has to win most MVP. And I know he's listening, so he's looking at you. Okay, I'm going to jump onto a production question. And... That was weird. I'm sorry. <laughs> This is one's from Planets and Magic, and I should have seen this one coming. I'm going to read this in the tone I believe it was intended. Okay. Alex, how's it been directing this season? <laughs> that's a question that's written, literally, but is definitely meant as a, how you doing? Uh, I can probably things? answer it for you, actually, if you'd like. Go for it. Uh, directing's been fine. Directing's actually been quite fun. I've got to work with a lot of good people. The editing and production has been bad. Yeah, it's been a bit hellish this year. Um, there were a couple of issues we had to do with sort of delayed casting and things like that, which meant that we had a lot of very short turnarounds due yeah. to stuff happens. Also, there was happen. oh, what was that? There was something that was happening in September that was it was a it was a oh, it was big. There was like a massive problem. I remember um, someone someone was getting married. That was not a problem. That was factored in. That was the only thing that was actually fine. That was, yes, I got married. I got married during this season, um, which was fine. That all went 
swimmingly. Um, it was lovely. But, uh, it, we yeah. got very damp in Wales. It was a very, very complicated season this year. If I was being cruel, potentially overcomplicated. That but would be cruel. <laughs> I don't know what yeah, we could like... really cut. I feel like anything that we shifted for the sake of production we we bent the story as far as we could before the story would literally change if we'd made production easier we would have made the story worse which might have been a trade worth making at certain points but it's not one we did so yeah there's a reason that we're taking a longer season break and a bigger run-up because you can only sprint for so long basically and yeah editors were real troopers on this one actually there was a lot of with the Alistair Soft's a good example. Hi, you were meant to have a week for this. Um, it went wrong. We did a re-record. It went wrong. You have two days to do a week's work. And people stepped up. So, yeah, that was amazing. So, Johnny's right. Directing? Yes. Production? No. <laughs> <laughs> On to another story one. This is from Atomic Pleb. As an ace person... <laughs> Sorry, it's just a great name. It is a good name. As an ace person, it really means a lot to have John as asexual representation in a podcast. Can I ask at what point in planning the podcast you decided to make that happen? That's a very good question, and it's a difficult one to answer because it's one of those where it wormed its way into sort of essentially my headcanon quite early in the writing process. And then later, I think during season two, when it started to actually become more textually relevant... We sort of we were discussing it and we uh, like nailed down the idea, but it's it's a really tricky it's a tricky question to answer as to at what point that character inkling became a canonical facet. The, the issue is it gets muddied up at our end in a way we haven't really discussed before. In the during initial like story development and pitching and so on, it was explicitly stated that the archivist that. You have to discuss what type of story you're telling. And at the straight out of mm. the gate, we were like, cool, archivist. Does the archivist have any kind of uh, romantic arcs at all through this? And we were both like, w- this isn't a romance. Yeah. It's a horror. Joke was on us. <laughs> well, yeah. But what that did is that muddied the waters a bit. So genuinely, yeah, headcanon pretty much from the outset. But I, it sounds silly. The thing is, like, I, I remember... it to be a thing. The thing is, I remember a conversation at some point during season one where we were sort of discussing what we thought the various characters' mm. sexualities were. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, oh, yeah, no, I think John's ace. And um, yeah. Alex, Alex was like, yeah, no, that, sound, that sounds right. But at the same time, that wasn't a planning conversation yeah, in the same wasn't, way. Yeah, it was going, we need to really have a, yeah. a sit down. I think out of everything from the entire series to date... That's been probably the biggest one that's had a largest impact that I most underestimated. Yeah, I did not anticipate the reaction, and it's it's lovely. Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't anticipate it would resonate as hard it as it has. It isn't something we put a little red mark on. A make sure you handle this correctly. Yeah. Like I feel like we have. I think so. Like but, I don't think we would have. I don't think we would have made it explicit if we weren't confident we'd done it reasonably thoughtfully. Uh, so we have one question set yep. aside, which is the elephant in the room uh, sure. question, which is a big question mm-hmm. and we knew we'd end up having to answer. Yep. So this one is from, quote, loads of people. Sure. Does the archivist slash John uh, reciprocate Martin's romantic feelings for him? People have been commenting on the ambiguity of the nature of his feelings. And would there be an explicit authorial confirmation on whether those feelings are romantic or not? So this is both a very simple answer. And a very complicated answer. Yes. The simple answer is, uh, yes, he reciprocates. It's it's a romance. At least I have written it as a romance. It has been intended. It is intended as, as a romance. However, there is 
obviously a much bigger conversation about death of the author and if that's not how people read it there i wrote a lot of drafts of 159 and there were a lot of versions where the archivist's emotional state during it was a lot more explicit and they all rang incredibly false because unfortunately i've spent we've spent four seasons building up a character who is an emotional emotional wreck he's yeah he's a mess of a not human and so i think the scenes that we ended up having are the most true to the characters I think there probably will be more explicit aspects to it going into season five. I believe so, yeah. But at the same time, I, as the author, cannot tell people that they are wrong for interpreting things in a, in a different way. Like, I don't think that people who read it as platonic are necessarily you know, wrong in how they respond to the text. But yeah, authorial intention is it as uh, romantic, but also it's a horror series and it's it was the focus of season four because it was the emotional core that led to uh, the culmination of the series. But it's going to take more of a backseat, I think, in season five. I think there's two things to take away from it is, one, you can't tell someone how to receive a text and you shouldn't tell someone how to receive a text because that's not how art works. Um, so if someone is receiving a text differently to you, that's fine. The other one I would say that's quite important is the ambiguity in 159 especially was not intended as a way of being deliberately ambiguous so people were left guessing. I'll be honest. It was a symptom of accurate characterization in terms of how they communicate with one another. I'll be honest, I... I mean, to me, it was very much uh, like a culmination of a culmination of a of a, of a love story yeah. scene, and it saddens me a bit that the fact that there wasn't the specific words "Yes, I love you too, Martin," and then they kiss. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, that is one thing I will say unequivocally: uh, you will never hear a kiss in the Magnus archives because audio-only kisses are the worst thing but in they the world. Sound- terrible like it's not an option no one is kissing no one is kissing in the magnus archives there are a couple of ways of making it less offensive on the ear but it still sounds like someone's eating chewing gum at you it doesn't work on audio i'm afraid it never will it's the nature of humans and ears no one likes other people kissing in their ears in that way it doesn't work (laughs) so yeah fundamentally uh, it is intended as a romance uh it will Mm -hmm continue to be so through season five though it will not be the focus uh but at the same time if you interpret it differently if your reactions to the text are different uh i mean you're not wrong because it's art that's how art yeah. works <laughs> cool a separate writing question now yes yes uh, this one's from dr Brainbox. Have the predictions slash theories on reddit influenced your storytelling in any way uh short answer no uh, I use the different social medias in to sort of check different things. Discord, I generally use to check the immediate fan reaction to an episode. Twitter, I mean, that tends to be where I actually engage with people. Tumblr, I use to check the how the emotional arcs of characters are being received. And at Reddit, I use to check how many people are successfully guessing, well, 
were successfully guessing about the mystery because generally with any given mystery you want a few people on reddit to be right about it and quite a few to be kind of right about it and a few more to be absolutely wrong and i really my favorite is if someone's absolutely wrong and the loudest in the room yeah that's that's great but occasionally you'll stumble across a thread and you'll be like oh no that's that's exactly you've You've got it. I can I can say this now. There's been at least one, maybe two. This is across all social media, so there's no way you'll be able to track them down. Who said, "Hi, um, I have a little pet theory. It's probably nothing." Blah, 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 and then just laid it out. Just yeah. just laid out every beat. The and whole be lot's like, there. Yes, you and got like, it. Good mate. for you. And then about forty people will come in, going, oh, "I'm not so sure." Or like actually, quite a few people are like, "That's a good theory, but there's this or this or this yeah, that yeah, means that yeah. it probably won't be the case." Yeah, yeah. So when you have a reveal of a mystery, you want a good balance of people feeling validated, mm-hmm. people feeling sort of half validated, half surprised, and people who just straight up didn't see it coming. And so I tend to use Reddit to check where people are sitting on that sort of scale. From Mellybean, a lot of fans were throwing around theories and two big ones turned out to be true, specifically the Jonah Elias overlap Mm -hmm. and the Watcher's Crown. Is it cool that the fans have managed to predict this or is it incredibly frustrating and annoying? No, it's brilliant. Yes, great. It means that you've done the job right. Yeah, absolutely. The prioritisation of shocking everyone with a big twist is the bane of long-term mystery writing. It is a trap. Because over the long term, if you've done enough foreshadowing that the twist is going to feel earned, people are going to guess it. And if you see that guess happening and you feel, oh no, they've guessed the twist, I need to change the twist, it's a trap. You're you're absolutely shooting your um, shooting your mystery in the foot and making it much less satisfying just because you don't realise that half the joy of a solved mystery is the validation of the people who got it right. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, feel free if people are getting too close to throw more red herrings in the mix. Oh, yeah. But that's different. There's the there's the old uh, adage, what, an ending needs to be both surprising and uh, inevitable. Yeah. That is true. What it doesn't mean is that your ending needs to shock the very foundations of every reader. Yeah. What it just means is that more people will go... Ah, that's it. That's that's the yeah. goal. Is a, a little. Hmm. Also, the more people have predicted the twist, the better you need to write the reveal. Fundamentally, yeah, that's fair. Actually, it does raise the stakes like, in terms I'm of delivery. I'm very, very happy with how we actually dealt with the Jonah Elias reveal because everyone had kind of guessed it. It's something we'd foreshadowed quite heavily. So we really went all out on the the flavor, the actual yeah, um, yeah the actual writing of the reveal, uh, so that it's not a oh my god, I never guessed. It's yes, I was right, and this is really cool. There's a there's a benefit actually to not reinventing the world. I mean, okay, bad choice of words, but your reveal doesn't have to be so enormous because it reduces the expositionary load as well. If you need to have a massive, enormous shocker that's coming from nowhere, that means that your villain has to sit down and monologue. And I don't mean monologue like we got away with. I mean proper. So two weeks ago, I did this and then I did that. We've managed to cover it up to a degree, but the more that your mystery makes sense and you aren't having to do that shoehorning in at the end, yeah. the less clunky it's going to feel. Yeah. Like our monologue, I was quite happy because it was mainly recontextualization. Yeah, exactly. It was saying, oh yeah, remember this thing? Actually, it fits in in this way, uh, as opposed to, well, in order to support this twist, here's some new information. Yeah, yeah. 
So this is from four chinchillas, one raincoat. Presumably an undersized raincoat. Chinchillas, not very large. Uh, but if they get wet, uh, you've got to dry them very carefully and make sure they get a dust bath. Otherwise, they can go mouldy and die. It's true. Their, their fur is so dense, it does not dry naturally. It's true. What's been the worst normal job you've ever had? All of them. I will jump in here. Day jobs are bad. And say my track record for work is longer than it should be due to me starting way younger than I should have. And additionally, most of my first jobs as a result were really illegal enterprises that got shut down i was not wow i was not being illegal i didn't know this uh so let's i can i can run through the list there was one job where it turned out every monday they hired people right you worked with them for a week and then they fired everyone on the friday but they said of course come back on monday and we'll rehire you meaning that their tax outlay for all employment was zero meaning that they had all these sales-based things that were not applicable that's one example there's been another one. That, a fine education for an entrepreneur. There was there was another one where it was fine, but I got told off a lot because I wrote something down at some point, you and it what? turned out that the cost of shredders for the immediate evacuation of the office, if it was audited, was so high that they were like, just remember things, because they couldn't afford the shredders to shred their records. Yep. Like my work history is checkered. And messy with other people's immoral decisions. My work history is broadly dull. Uh, I've generally worked uh, a series of just incredibly medium, low-key demoralising, but fundamentally not egregious office jobs. We actually met. Shared. Uh, we actually yeah. met uh, at. One of my favourite jobs, actually. Genuinely, one of the cushiest gigs I ever got. So it was uh, <laughs> night shift. Seven days uh, on, seven yep. days off, uh, and you'd get in at ten thirty. You'd leave at six thirty, yep. and you'd spend the evening. It was a media monitoring company, so you were uh, you were writing article summaries and checking that everything that had come into the system uh, had come in correctly, and there weren't any sort of irrelevant or um, like articles that whatever client wouldn't want to see. And then you were hitting the space bar to reject them. <laughs> And it was silent. Utterly silent. I've never heard 80 people at one point. Just pure silence. It took about 40% of your brain. And the rest, this was actually, this was about, what, six years ago now? I spun up a company at the same time as working it in the same office on the same computers at some Um, point. And I was listening to, this was before the sort of the podcast boom had really hit. Yeah. Uh, So I was listening to uh, a lot of Pseudopod uh, and a lot of... um, Please tell me lights out. Yeah, no, no. Like this was when I was like, because there weren't as many sort of horror podcasts. Yep. I found this uh, archive of old vintage radio shows, and I was listening to sort of Nightfall from the 80s, and yeah, Lights Out, uh, with all its ionised yeast adverts. Five to ten pounds of good new flesh. Good new flesh. I'm just so tired of this war job of mine. (laughs) I sure am discouraged. If only I had more flesh. Say, (laughs) why don't you try ionised yeast? It costs just pennies a day. Maybe you need more vitamin B12 and iron. Um, yeah. Uh, and we we sort of met in the not silent, but still pretty subdued kitchen of that job. Um, True. Though we didn't actually start work together for a couple of 
until I'd actually left that yeah, yeah. Uh, left that job. We met, but didn't really do anything. We, we met and got on time. really well. Yeah. Um, and then the the year I left, you came to see the Max up at uh, oh, yeah, saying that we got on really well. Or... Johnny kept going on about this weird creative gig that he was doing. It's like I'm sure it's good. I'm sure oh, it's yeah. fine. Like sure. And then I actually took a pun. And went oh no, it's really good. Oh, I'm I'm the bad person. Oh. <laughs> It's really good. To be fair, you say that, but like the number of friends I have who do really good creative things, and I'm and every time they're like, "Oh yeah, I've been working on this," and I'm like, "I still haven't gotten around to actually." Yeah, a little bit. Watch it. Oh, it's uh, so I can't really, uh, I can, I can't really be mad at anyone else for uh, not. Well, I've, I've said it before. I have bought four albums in my life: Paul Simon's Graceland and three Mechanisms <laughs> albums. That's it. That's all the albums I've ever bought. <laughs> We've gone a little bit off topic yeah, from, Sorry, uh, from what jobs have you worked. I'm going to bring it back on. We're going to bring it back on. Okay, cool. Um, good question from... Uh, is it Flaming or Flamin' Cobbles? I think it's Flamin' Cobbles. Okay. Uh, one of our vintage fans. So, was it intended to have Alex play Jared Hopworth or was that a late decision out of necessity? And how far did that influence the voice distortion in that episode? There's about three layers to this question. Yep. First one is there were casting issues which made things awkward. So we do a casting system where there's like a, a tier of people where there's like six people per role and then you have a, like a highest preference and lowest preference and it's not based on talent. A lot of it's based on like availability and I mean, yeah. stuff like that. So ultimately we were working our way through the list. It's and- one of those things about this industry, uh, certainly at, like at this level, is being able to show up on time and uh, like get stuff done mm-hmm. is often a lot more important than being the absolute best voice actor in the room. The sad truth is there is no shortage of talent in the world, but there is arguably a shortage of conscientiousness sometimes. So sometimes. it sounds it sounds it sounds strange, but yeah, turning up on time is a big plus. So as it stood, we ended up with Full disclosure, I overslept this morning and was an hour late. <laughs> but it's not been an hour late every single time. No. And, and sometimes no. two hours. <laughs> So, in terms of Jared Hopworth, we actually ended up going through pretty much all of our choices quite quickly. Also, we did something that you shouldn't ever do. Don't do... Avoid this, kids. Learn from our mistakes. (laughs) Don't smoke behind the bike sheds. And also, don't go, oh, you know what? Actually, this person that we were going to cast as Jared Hopworth would work really even better in this other role. Oh, yeah. And then just slowly exhaust your Jared mm-hmm. Hopworth options going, well, mm-hmm. they're going to be better here, they're going to be better here, and then we suddenly realised that we'd given away all our Jared Hopworths. Well, not, and the ones that we hadn't given away couldn't, turned out... Literally couldn't, couldn't do make it. it. They weren't in, in the um, country, things like that. So then I ended up doing a test audio showing that I could do it. However, it is a bit frustrating to me in that it didn't need as much vocal messing around as it had the reason for a lot of them vocal messing around is it's in the corridors oh, and the yeah. corridors are the Sorry most about that. messed up soundscape that there actually is like it's the one that changes so speech the most we were changing alex's voice so it wasn't as recognizable we were adding in some meat sounds because meat sounds yep. they're good uh, and then we were also adding corridor distortion so, for just a, a cocktail of uh in retrospect potentially unoptimum. Yeah, so we ended up in a situation where it ended up having a lot more effects than you really should squeeze into MP3, yeah. but it was just, just a story things that are unavoidable. He's a man made of meat in a corridor made of unreality um, who is three to five times the size of a normal human being. Like, Sorry. These things stack up. Um, so this is a nice quick one that mm-hmm. relates to stuff we said earlier, which is Sazandorable. 
You've both talked in the past about the problem of including swearing in the show. What was the process that led to Martin, who's being known for being polite and voiced by Alex, drop an F-bomb? I wrote in the script. Alex looked at it and said, yeah, this is the right time. And I said, yeah, isn't it? Uh, because while it wasn't the most plot bomb revelation, yeah. from a personal point of view, from the character's point of view, this was possibly the biggest discovery. This was a discovery that most recontextualized everything about their situation. Plus, I mean, from the sake of script efficiency, I can't even is three words. Yeah. And that expletive is two words, so, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's an optimum choice. It just, we, we, we drafted the, the scene a couple of times, and that was easily the, the best version of it. Plus, it was funny. It was funny. I like funny. And also, shortly after we'd recorded it, I stumbled across the fact that there was a Tumblr that was called Has Mar- something like Has Martin Blackwood Said Yet. Oh yeah, well, we hadn't, um, we weren't aware of it until after we'd done the recording, which I was, was quite like, nice. Oh, you sweet summer child, you don't realise you're a countdown. <laughs> right, I'm going to jump onto another story yeah, yeah, along because we're getting through please. these now, which is nice. This is from Bo Jester Real. Did the desolation really kill Gertrude's cat? And was that her primary motivation for waging war on the fears? Because that's pretty realistic for a cat person. I don't know. There are some mysteries, as we've established, that don't need answers. Although I, I've gotten a very small amount of trouble for this, because my stated policy, one of the stated rules of Magnus, is if we meet an animal, if we meet a pet specifically, yep. uh, it won't come to harm within the episode. And some people feel that Gertrude's theoretical possible cat breaches that rule, which I personally disagree with, because I mean there is animal death in the Magnus archives. Mm-hmm. The point of the rule comes out of arachnophobia with Major Tom, because we actually got a surprising amount of feedback saying that people were having legitimate difficulty listening through the episode because as soon as Major Tom was introduced, it took them out of it because they were too busy worrying about the well-being of the cat to actually properly engage with the horror. So it's very much... uh, So while also I don't don't particularly like violence against animals or, or animal death in this sort of thing... But it is very much a, a practical rule saying, no, if you if you meet an animal, if you meet a pet specifically, within the context of an episode, you don't need to worry about it dying. Uh, you can assume it's safe and engage with the story. A better way to say it'd be, if in all of these historical accounts that we've had from Gertrude, there was a cat present that Gertrude was spending loads of time with yeah, yeah, yeah. We and having would... a chill, you don't kill the We're cat not kill as that. a punishment for another character. But at the same time... I don't feel like saying that there might theoretically have been a cat who died 50 years ago actually breaches that rule. Also, it might not have existed. It might have been a joke. I don't know. No, you heard it here first, everyone. Johnny Sims hates cats. They have two cats. Hates cats. Don't don't say these things. Okay, we're on to uh, a writing one again. This is from Chris Sterling. Was it your intent from the get-go to have every major character in the Magnus archives being some flavour of queer, or was it just a coincidence? I mean, not from the beginning. I I would go so far as to say neither. No. We didn't have, like, a checkbox list that we have to hit, but similarly, coincidence implies that you're just kind of freewheeling it and you don't put any thought the, the, in. So. Well, the, the, I mean, there, there were some that we obviously put thought in because the relationships are important, and, like, there are... I mean, there are plenty of characters whose sexuality has never been explicitly addressed. Also, you get a lot of straight characters out there it's nice to have some others <laughs> it opens story options up as well Doesn't if you're going to be if you're going to be a uh, like horrible puppet master story writer you get more options 
with a broader palette of characters. I mean, that's You true. just do. It makes things easier, not harder. Yeah. Follow-up question related to that from uh, Eliza. How do you avoid tropes like queer baiting and bury your gaze as a, as a thing when writing? A lot of it is just trying to be thoughtful, be aware of these tropes, and have a wide enough context and a, and a diverse enough cast and uh, world that you have story options, but they don't necessarily push you into these problematic tropes. Yeah, I, I can really add anything to that. It's as straightforward as you can really get in an answer. It's like there are plenty of uh, like female characters who do conform to certain... Oh, this isn't a great stereotype. Sure. But at the same time, there are enough female characters that it's not... Oh, there's one female character and she is this problematic stereotype. Yeah. Honestly, if you just have a broad enough set of people within your world that's and you treat them like people and you all treat everyone the same they're like they're you treat them like characters rather than like types we're going to move across then to uh, another misc one mm-hmm. this is from abigul and also i know right. a few people have asked this but were there any good cows i mean obviously that's <laughs> that a great daft question you ever seen scottish cows cows they're great they, they're they, these fluffy, shaggy things. And depending where you go, like they're left alone for like yeah. a month at a time, easy if not more. They're just... Utterly unguarded, easily huggable. Doing their own thing. <laughs> I mean, don't... I mean, I, I cannot take any responsibility for anyone who attempts to hug a Highland cow. Uh, so if you injure yourself doing so, that's that's not on me. That's Alex's I fault. I mean, statistically speaking, they're one of the most dangerous animals. Really? A lot of people act really dumb around cows, and that's why. Huh. A cow is when you get up close, spot Alex who grew up in the middle of nowhere and it doesn't come up that often. Um, cows are both very, very big and meaty animals that everyone thinks are dumb and you can do anything you want around them. That tends to go badly. Being dumb around cows is the same as being dumb around any other Fair animal. Enough. So you heard it here. Second, don't be dumb around cows. Oh. But there were good cows. Oh, they because were great cows. Scotland's full of them. <laughs> okay, we are going to jump all the way back around to a cast run then. This is for you, mm-hmm. Johnny. Well, sort of for you. You'll see what I'm okay, getting at. Okay. So this is from Gilligan Mungus. Okay. Uh, Red has written, does your mom uh, know... Sorry, my what? Uh, mom. Um, etymologically, I think it is related to the word mother. Oh, my mom. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, that'll yeah, be yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Does your mom know how much the fandom absolutely loves her portrayal of Gertrude? What does she think of her immense popularity? She's vaguely aware. I haven't actually spoken to her about it since uh, 160 dropped. Um, oh, neither have I, actually. Yeah, no, she, but she's she's having a, a real good time uh, in terms of the reception of Gertrude. I remember um, early in season four, uh, I, I'd given her a script uh, for Gertrude being particularly ruthless about something. She gave me a call and we were arranging uh, the recording. She's like, Gertrude, I mean... You know, she's a, a bit of a she's a bit of a, a bee, isn't she? <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, mother, she's quite ruthless." Um, so yeah, she she's having a real good time with it. Basically, I was really disappointing this season because I didn't allow a cackle. What she gave a cackle? No, no, no. She was she was begging, begging to give a cackle. She's like, "Can I cackle here?" It's not. Gertrude's not really a cackler, not but, a cackler. but it's such a good cackle moment. And it, uh, word for word, and Alex, you may not be aware, but I have an excellent cackle here. Yeah, Let sure. me cackle for you. It was an excellent cackle. But do you Gert- mean do we have it on tape? Uh, yes, there is. A, Patreon buried bonus somewhere. I will see if I can't find it. Your mum does an excellent cackle, but oh, yeah. Gertrude's not a cackler. No, she no, she's not. And your your mum was well disappointed by that. <laughs> uh, this is from AGVZ. 
Grand. Season four was my favourite so far in terms of sound design. What is your creative <laughs> process for building soundscapes, and has this changed over the course of the series? My my process What's your is process? my process for well, give designing. Give an example of your stage my, direction. My Johnny. my process for designing stage directions is uh, I will I'll have an idea, and uh, then I'll write it in as unhelpful or counterintuitive a way as possible, uh, such as uh, the world goes wrong. Uh, is a, is a is a classic. I feel like you um, may have done one somewhere, although this might have been season two, where it, it's something you genuinely put some version of. It's all a bit much. Something like that. It's all <laughs> that, a bit much. That sounds about right. Like, in in my defence, it was all a bit much, what Alex. Does, what does that mean? It's all a and bit then, much. And then I'll hand it over to Alex, and Alex will say, "Cool." I so need what to does know, this mean? I need to know interior, exterior, and time I'll be of like, day, and I'll be weather. like, interior or exterior. What a good question conceptually, given this space exists outside of time. Hmm. And then Alex will say, just go away. I'll I'll figure it out. Well, no, we have interior, exterior, and window. Eldritch. That's yeah. fine. Eldritch is fine. It means dot. try and make it sound weird without making the speech unintelligible, which is fine until we're revisiting an old mm-hmm. Eldritch and you can't pull the same tricks, i.e. Jared Hopwood situation. Yes. Uh, so interior, exterior, weather, time of day, and I think I had it added. They all extra... just happen at some point, Alex. Like, I... I think I don't think time of day is really like no one cares. About I added what time an extra criteria I haven't told Johnny, which I have been keeping a note of, which is an extra column in there, which is nonsense question mark, which is They're what nonsense, nonsense has Johnny forgotten to mention? Where it'd be the kind of thing where you do this and then he'd be like, "Oh, I did. You know, I didn't write. There is a brass band." playing the entire time i don't know how i've never put in a brass band um but that kind that kind of thing in terms of how you build it it was woodwind unfortunately i've made a bit of a rod for my own back in magnus in that we have a very set of consistent rules regarding soundscaping that people have picked up on in a good way so stuff like static applies in certain situations and doesn't types of static are different that kind of thing which means that handover in terms of soundscaping is a bit of a nightmare at this stage it's a weird one as well because it means that a lot of there's a lot of theory that's been built around different sorts of static. Static is something I've been very bad about consistently oh, writing it's, into oh, it's script. Oh, it consistent from Maya. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> to the point where I've had to insist on extra stage directions to pick out when something's compelled or not, things mm. like that. But the, the secret dirty secret I don't like ex- admitting, which is that in Magnus I'm still doing the soundscaping. Yeah. Vocals are done by uh, a couple of people. Elizabeth Moffat, I'm going to shout out in this one. She's been really good this season. She's she's excellent, actually. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, Brock Winstead has been doing most of the music. I think it's been one oh, or two. Oh, we actually him. shot him as well. Yes, we did. He is the um, He's the cop. The police officer in America. Name. I forgot the cop's name. Uh, Musterman? Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. He's Musterman. Um, so he, he got shot. Because he bit. is actually American. So <laughs> we were like, hey, can you, can you, can you be an American cop and then get shot by an old man? <laughs> um, but he said yes. In terms of soundscaping... It's a big thing I can't go into here. Like I could run workshops on it that would last a long time. But generally speaking, the best way that we do is you find out where the thing is happening. You add in three layers. You need a close layer, a mid layer and a far layer. And you need a bass layer, a mid layer and a treble layer. How those two interact, so you could have distant treble and close layer. You basically have to hit those, otherwise your soundscape is going to feel a bit flat. There's an exception of the archivist's office, which is a dead room and has been from the beginning. But beyond that, it's a lot of finding the right sound effects or recording one yourself and then tweaking a tenth of a second 
50, 60 times and lots of listen to it, not right, listen to it, lot right, and just trial and error. I'd love to say there's a magic source that isn't. It's just you keep pouring time in and stuff comes out the other end. Alex is radically overcomplicating it, as always. You just write it in italics. Ah, uh, you know what? Johnny's right. You just... You just, just... Left the line at right in italics. It's fine. Or, Square brackets. That that's that's. Or the you key. don't write it in italics, and then you just go, "Oh yeah, that oh, is." And then you, know, remind, you remind you remind them later. The yeah, no, that's it's it's actually very simple. Don't request soundscape changes after it's recorded. That's a that's a good one. I, don't I've, do I've that. never done that. Johnny's never, I've done, never that. done that. Don't do that. That's I'm a not gonna. that's a no no. Not gonna. That that that. that Although actually, temper. I was listening back to one sixty. Oh yeah. Um, and I was thinking, mm-hmm. don't do uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a right. <laughs> right okay we're gonna keep going we're gonna keep going um this is a story related one which i know a lot of people have asked uh didn't martin say that gertrude had been shot at least three times when he saw the body yet the recording of elias only has one gunshot something happened in the sound editing some might say that the tape someone, finished before he took the next someone two shots. might say that uh certain soundscapers misread Misread the script. The, the tape stopped um, and Elias took two more shots. Yeah, so basically what happened like in canon, and this is the one time I will 100%, this is word of God, after the tape stopped, turned out Gertrude was too much of a badass to die from just a single gunshot. <laughs> she lunges at Elias. Elias <laughs> screams uh, like a scared child and fires wildly three times. Misses. Gertrude <laughs> gets a machete from under the desk. Cackling. Cackling. <laughs> uh, lunges at him, but ah. Oh, Two more shots to the chest, and Gertrude finally goes down. It's not that Alex misread the script. I, I need that this, is a hundred percent. I need, I need not this formally it. on the record, okay? Because this this is the kind of thing that can get away from us. Hi everyone, this is Alex speaking as Alex. This isn't even like Alex as character. This is just Alex being Alex. This isn't a thing. The fact that there was one gunshot there is not a thing. It's it's not. It's just. I think I made a gaff. Over 160 episodes, and I'm sorry, I've disappointed you, but more importantly, I've disappointed myself. You've disappointed my mother, Alex. I mean, oh, I, no. I, I, I don't know. I, that, I categorically she's, haven't. Your no, mum no, loves she's me. Fine. She thinks I'm great. I'll tell you what, we can do a George Lucas, and in 10 years, we can remaster it. And Gertrude shot first. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, that all got real. Oh, I'm so disappointed. That's all right. I'm sorry, mate. This is from Bone God. If we were, is it? It is. It's from Bone God. If we were to take one lesson moral away from the story thus far, what would you like it to be? Sometimes, okay, people make mistakes in uh, editing, and that's okay, and it doesn't need it's to be... It's important to forgive. It doesn't need to be lingered on. It's important on. to forgive. A lesson or moral? Oh, God. It's, it's a really difficult one, because Magnus, certainly seasons three and four, have, for me, been an examination of a lot of questions about choice and responsibility and what your responsibilities, I guess, are when you find yourself in situations, which we all do, where you are beholden to forces larger than yourself and the idea that what you can do is constrained and what the results of your choices are are unclear. And you can take actions and you can do things and the results of those actions aren't actually up to you. But that's very much me working through a lot of my own thoughts, but I don't really have a, an explicit moral. It's a, it's, a, it's a really difficult question, a difficult situation, both in the show and in real life. Um, it's like 
I've seen there's quite a lot of uh, discussion about uh, the ending of, of 160 and whether it means that, uh, for instance, uh, all Gertrude's actions were pointless mm. uh, or whether Tim died for nothing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good point. And it's a real complicated question because on the one hand, I mean, kind of, yes. Like, this is horror on a cosmic scale and one of the cornerstones of cosmic horror is fundamentally that the actions of the individual, broadly speaking, are never going to do good. Pretty much. But, for instance, Tim, he didn't actually save the world. But that wasn't really what he was there for. He was there for revenge. Hmm. Uh, nobody involved knew quite how pointless, I guess, their their whole... But people were telling him, please don't go off on a massive revenge but spree also, because it won't fix your problem. But also, it is still very much the closure of his arc. I mean, very few of us actually get our real-life arcs closed saving the world. It's and the, that doesn't mean that they're pointless. It's my most favourite way to start a story. Is It sounds peculiar. There's nothing I enjoy more than mm. starting a story with an, a, a death that is not significant. So not a death that is an opening to a mystery. It's a, it's a personal preference of, I love a character has died and that's just a thing that's happened as opposed to a, a, something that you hang yeah. a coat off, if you know what I mean. But no, like, Tim's, Tim's story is, is a tragedy, but I don't think it's the revelation of its lack of meaningful consequence within the wider universe invalidates those choices. Like, the choices we take are our choices regardless of what their actual result turns out to be. Yeah. It's the same with Gertrude. I mean, in many ways, Gertrude is kind of me working through a lot of my thoughts on the idea of you know the, the ends justify the means because Gertrude does full-on atrocities she does horrible ruthless things in order to from her point of view save the world and turns out at the very end she didn't need to uh, and even that those actions fundamentally spurred the the course that uh, that brings about that end and it's the idea that the ends may justify the means, but you can never be sure what those ends are actually going to be. Gertrude is an excellent demonstration of something I've been doing a lot of reading about in the last year. Just pure, like, mm. personal interest. If you're interested, look into both the mathematics and the actual just philosophy of existential risks as a thing. Yeah. There's a huge amount of writing, which I think people will start to realise there's a lot of Gertrude in there, which is talking about... If there is an existential risk where literally everything's at stake, there is an argument to be made that all acts are moral if they mitigate that. It is not a... To be, to be clear, this isn't a stance. This is a, a, a philosophical... You play. heard it here first, folks. Oh, Alex. Yes. Wants to just do a lot of murder to save the world. But if I put the entire world at risk first, it makes all of my actions fine. <laughs> oh, that, that's smart. <laughs> Loophole. <laughs> but in all, in all seriousness, Gertrude's a good example of that because it's a good way of tying back into the cosmic horror, which is mm. the world is complicated and it actively doesn't like you. Yeah, so it's an uncaring, hostile universe. How do you deal with that? Generally speaking, as a character, you either find your own meaning, which means that how it interacts with the wider world, as long as your own meaning is intact is okay which i'd argue tim sort of hits that note yeah or you engage on the gertrude route which is no all of this is determined externally in which case you get in some really weird personal morality because one of them's got to give you, you can't yeah. have both you can't be objectively and subjectively in the right really it doesn't work like that 
Yeah. So I don't think there are any core morals of Magnus. You create fictional spaces that they're not necessarily direct metaphors, yeah. but they work in a in a space where people can put metaphorical frameworks on them yeah. and see how they see how they stretch. And there's nothing more didactic than going in and saying, "Here is the takeaway lesson." Yeah. And also because there there is no like there are no easy answers to these questions that can be neatly popped in podcast format. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, people have put uh, like obviously people quite often put a, a an anti-capitalist sort of um metaphorical framework over Magnus which 100% works. Um but it's not quite as simple as the entities are a metaphor for capitalism. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The entities can be a metaphor for uh, a lot of things. Um, and I hope that Magnus provides people a space to work through their own thoughts on stuff. Mm. Okay, so we're going to round up this first Q&A with uh, one last question. Okay. This is from Chucking Woods 2000. Alex. So pitch- Chucking 2000 Woods? No, Chucking Woods 2000. Chucking a Wood 2000 times? Chucking, or, okay, it's... Or clear- the 2000th? It's clearly the a... 2000th Chucking it's Wood. It's clearly a 1970s horror based on, like, how much wood would wood chuck chuck, but the remake in the 2000s where it's, like, a reboot. Or it's just a name, Chucking Wood, and there have been Two- 1,999 <laughs> ancestors of identical names. Let's assume that. So, Chucking Woods the 2000th. Mm-hmm. I guess, according to Johnny. Alex, picture this. Johnny just fell into a lake. Oh, no! Drunkenly waving the complete season five script in his hand. God! Do you save him oh. first, abandoning the script, or do you just take the script and go home? Okay, I'm really sorry, Chucking Woods. Why but did I drink you, so much? You have fundamentally misunderstood the level of paranoia that I have. I rescue Johnny, laugh at the script that's kicking around in there, knowing that if Johnny hasn't got multiple digital redundance cloud saved in separate locations, that on his head be it, and I'll put him back in the water. So honestly, I, I, I don't feel like there's much of a quandary there, because if yeah, he hasn't... Yeah, I mean, the, the, this scenario assumes that Alex hasn't pushed me into the lake because he was dissatisfied with the season five script. You know what, that's also a valid point. If Johnny is in there with the only copy of the script, Johnny deserves to be in there, because he has violated all of the safety protocols, and I can't be held responsible for what I do in that situation. But the core question... Uh, of whether Alex sees me as a valued friend or a uh, writing machine, I think is... And I think that pretty much wraps up the Q&A um, for, for for this episode. We'll, um, we'll be returning with another one because we had way too many questions. So many questions. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're basically going to do an, un, an anticlimactic bye followed yep. by immediately carrying on at this end. Bye! <laughs> This episode is distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. For more information, visit RustyQuill.com. Tweet us at the Rusty Quill, visit us on Facebook, or email us at mail at RustyQuill.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up, what was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, everyone. It's Kareem, the voice of Simon Fairchild and the Eternal Tavern Keeper. Today, I'm here to tell you about The Program. The Program audio series is a science fiction anthology podcast set in a world where money, state, and God are fused into a single entity. Every episode is a standalone story featuring ordinary people inhabiting this extraordinary world. And for them, it's not this future that is terrifying, but our present. The program is sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, but it is always smart. Find out more about The Program at www.rustyquill.com or www.programaudioseries.com or search for The Program Audio Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have fun and see you later.